You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with George McCary, who is a professor at the Weill Cornell Medical Center, also the director of the DeWitt Wallace Institute there, which is this very interdisciplinary place where you study the history of psychiatry. Welcome, George. Thank you for having me. Well, I forgot to mention also that you're the author of a number of books. The, the most recent book is this one called Of Fear and Strangers, A History of Xenophobia. And before that, this one called Soul Machine, The Invention of the Modern Mind. And before that, a Revolution in Mind, The Creation of Psychoanalysis. Now, when I was reading Soul Machine, what really struck me is this covers familiar ground for me. I studied early modern history. But when we studied early modern history, particularly intellectual history, we looked at it through the lens of philosophy, right? And through the lens of the natural sciences, sometimes through the lens of, of literature. But we never discussed medicine. And what's amazing to me is that all of these folks, right? Descartes and Locke and Gassendi and Spinoza, I mean, they, they thought of, some of them were actually practicing doctors, and but all of them thought of themselves when they were, thinking about mind, when they're thinking about soul, when they're thinking about the relationship between the two, they thought of themselves as doctors. And in all my years in history, I never encountered medical history, right? History of psychiatry. And yet you can look through that lens and not only see all those familiar faces, but then there are all these characters that I had never heard of or that I'd heard of only tangentially, right? You hear about phrenology and, and vitalism and, and stuff like that. But those were incredibly important figures and they've kind of faded into memory because in the sciences we like to purge all the people who are found to be wrong whereas in philosophy we keep them alive so do you think more people in the world of intellectual history need to spend time thinking about medicine and the history of medicine well i i would put the question more broadly i i think that what i found similar to what you said was that when you went in search of the history of the mind, what you found was maybe a history of the mind through the lens of philosophy. Charles Taylor wrote a good one like that. But the more and more I looked into it, it became so clear that the notion of the mind was highly implicated in science, but also medicine and politics and broader social change. And that a lot of our 21st century categories we apply back to a time where they didn't really exist. These silos were not anything that, you know, someone in the Royal Society in 1660 would think about. There were three faculties, law, theology, medicine. If you were in the natural sciences, probably you did something in medicine. So it opened up a way of looking at the problem, which was much broader and has implications for today, which is to say the argument in the book is that claims about the, the, these essences, these major human essences, the soul, the mind, the brain, have very important socio-political ramifications and, you know, not just downstream, but can be affected by socio-political kind of cultural beliefs. And so I tried to tell that bigger story, 
medicine, being part of science, being part of politics, and trying to piece out how these different kinds of things interacted in the creation of the kind of state that we're in now, thinking about soul, mind, and body, and brain. And of course, the main thrust of the narrative is the emergence of this idea of thinking matter, right? Which was really, I guess, a threatening and shocking concept for for many, particularly with strong religious beliefs. And it was Locke who really was the kind of major protagonist, who himself was a doctor. Yeah, Locke is, I find it hard to choose one person in the book because there's a lot of great characters, but a number of people have said Locke is the main character in the book. And to that, I, I would probably have to assent. He was a fascinating guy. Most people know about him because of his political theory. And, you know, what I found was that I thought his medical training was incredibly important. And he studied with the greatest neuroanatomists of the time. And, you know, I found his notes and read his notes in the lectures. And there it was. It said that there is this thing called the tabla rasa. He got it from his teacher. And yeah, there was this very important pivot he had to make. Look, mechanical philosophy had made it clear from Galileo that a lot of the world might be mechanistic. But this question of how there could be an active force that gave us will, intention, some free will, some power of intention, that was the critical dividing line between the the rational soul and all the other mechanistic stuff. And so to get around that, Locke basically said, somehow in the brain, there's this thing that thinks. There is thinking matter. And how does it have an active force? God made it so. I mean, he obviously he had no idea. But by making that claim, it opened the door to thinking about a natural mind that could be healthy, that could be sick. And that's why I argued that Locke is the pivot for the beginning of mental health and mental illness, because before that, it was soul and body, not mind, that were ill. Now, there are others, I mean, Hobbes and, and Spinoza, who were making similar types of claims, but they encountered a lot more resistance. And I think part of the story that you tell has to do with maybe some level of misunderstanding, right? Because Locke was writing in English, and, and we use these words like mind and, and self, which don't really exist in the continent, which I hadn't really thought about that. Because in French, you, you think about, you know, esprit or or âme, but they're not the same thing. So there are two different points you're making. They're both really interesting points to me, at least. One is that you're absolutely right. In terms of the materialism of mind as being part of brain, Hobbes really was all over it and more powerfully. He stated it more powerfully than Locke did. Spinoza too. Well, Spinoza is complicated, but both of them were more radically materialistic than Locke, who made these gestures towards the church sometimes. And to me, the implication is, who makes for reform in society? It's actually the guy who sneaks in the back door in this case, not the guy who's trying to blow up the building. You know, The guys who are trying to blow up the building, Spinoza and Hobbes, you can't cite them or else you're in big, big trouble. It's very clear that Locke read Hobbes. I don't know about Spinoza, but we know that he read Hobbes but he would never cite him because it was super dangerous to do so. So that was one kind of like at least historical moment where the somewhat less extreme reformers are actually able to change society in a way that the radicals called for but couldn't affect. 
And then the question of how this translates into different languages became super interesting to me and super problematic because, you know, this book has been translated into other languages, which has been a bit of a doozy for me because when Locke repurposes the word mind, mind in Shakespeare is just the equivalent of soul. It really is no different than the rational soul. And he's going to repurpose it and make a distinction between the soul, which of course you can believe in as for the afterlife, but separate from the thing that thinks, that does memory, reason, will, that's now going to be just the mind. Okay, now, as you say, you go to France where the early translators look at this, and they don't, the, the first one didn't know English that well, I don't think, and he does not know what to do. There's no equivalent for mind in French. So he goes for esprit. The Germans go for geist. And these are words that essentially mean spirit. And so, in a way, the great challenge of that word gets lost in translation. But again, the same kind of argument applies. It got by the censors. In France at the time, if you had said something materialistic like that, you wouldn't have gotten past the censors. And so there's a kind of plausible deniability about calling it esprit that I think also, I mean, this book was not published, you know, this was published uh, illegally and on the black market, but still kind of allowed people to make the claim that they weren't heathens that were attacking the church. So it's a very interesting story. The other one that got really messed up is Locke posits this notion of consciousness, that the inner theater that Descartes talked about as well was he called consciousness. And the translator did not know what to do with that word because it doesn't exist in French. And so he used conscience, which means conscience. So again, there's this incredible mismatch as it travels between English, French, and German. It becomes an interesting subplot in the story, if you will. Now, now a lot of us think of, of Descartes as sort of the first modern philosopher. You remind us that Descartes was, in many ways, deeply conservative, right? And became the orthodoxy, right? I mean, his line of thought became part of the religious orthodoxy. And I remember the, the, the whole discussion of the pineal gland and how he found it really important to find this like nexus between uh, body and soul. Yeah, no, that, that's absolutely right. So the beginning, Descartes does something radical. He says, I'm going to support the notion of the immaterial soul without recourse to faith. I'm going to only use reason and skepticism. And in that way, he's an enlightenment thinker. But the answer that he comes up with, which is that there's this immaterial cogito, is at first rejected by the church. And, but then the church is like, wait, this is really good. <laughs> this is exactly what we want. And so over the course of 40, 50 years, it becomes dogma. The Catholic church adopts it and it becomes super powerful. It's still very powerful today because there's something very intuitive about this notion, which is wrong, I think, that the mind is immaterial and not like our bodies. It's kind of the way we operate mostly until something goes wrong in our bodies. So in any case, yeah, he had a real problem then because he was involved with this wonderful, brilliant woman, the Princess of Bohemia. And she was like, I don't understand. How does an immaterial thing control a material brain? And Gassendi had asked him the same question. And he had said famously, any idiot can ask a question in five minutes that a genius couldn't answer in a lifetime. And so he just blew him off. But I guess the princess was more persistent. And so he had to come up with something where the immaterial cogito 
found its way into the brain. It had to be unilateral, couldn't be bilateral, because I don't know who has a bilateral soul. And so he decided on the pineal gland, which makes us laugh now, but even at the time brought him into disrepute as a neuroscientist. This was clearly wrong, people like Thomas Willis said, because like they're really primitive animals that have huge pineal glands and they don't have bigger souls than we do. Anyway, you could see how this is a little bit like how many angels dance on the head of a pin, but it was his attempt and it did make it even more powerful that there's got to be a different answer. Now, this also corresponds to the time when people started doing dissections and they were discovering things like nerves and they were looking into the brains, right? And understanding how the different parts of the nervous system worked. Yeah, and to this goes to your point before. These guys, some of them are considered philosophers. Descartes did tons and tons of dissections. He liked to live, he moved around a lot. He's a weird guy. But he would move to places, but also be near the butcher because he would get the carcasses and dissect them. So he did a lot of dissections. He wasn't the best neuroanatomist. Some of it, if you look at his brain pictures, there, there's some, some, some real problems in it. Thomas Willis was the guy who in, in, um, in England was the best neuroanatomist at the time. But yes, it was not, philosophers did dissection of the brain and bra people who did dissection of the brain made claims about philosophy. There was no clear red mark that said like, you're not gonna get tenure if you do that. They were all trying to understand as much as they could. Now, the discovery of the mind means that you also get the discovery of, of mental illness, right? And so there was a, a fundamental shift in how people thought of people that we would now call mentally ill. And the, I think the story of George III plays a big role here. I, I remember the play, right, The Madness of King George. That's all I remember about it. But this was like front page news all across Europe. Yeah, that it was a very big deal. But you're absolutely right, just to your first point, that you had illnesses of the body that affected people and made them psychotic and stuff like that, delirious. But that came from the body. In the initial soul-body dichotomy, you could have bodily illnesses that made you loopy. You could have soul possession or inspiration by a demon. And so the early doctors had to vet these people who came to them. Either you, go, you send them to the Galenic doctor who's gonna bleed them for their bodily problems, or you send them to the exorcist and the priest to, to help them with their soul problems. But this was now this third category of a mind that was ill, a natural mind, not supernatural, and not just reduced to the body that was ill, and therefore could be cured. If it was made ill, it should be able to be cured. And so this was a, this strand that emerged after Locke for, you know, slowly, because doctors are so conservative, for a half a century, uh, and then there's this big pivotal moment, this moment like that we would today call something went viral. And it was the king, King George III, who was mentally ill. And this was, first of all, very shocking because he was an absolute ruler who was supposed to be very close to God. His dictums were never questioned. He said something, it was to be taken as truth and his orders were followed. Well, he started to say really crazy things and his dictums were starting to be more and more improbable if absurd. And so he's now, this is a challenge for both the crown and the legitimacy of the crown. And the word spreads all around Europe and it's daily front page news, the king is sick. And they bring in the guys who bleed you and his wife to her everlasting credit, 
starts to realize it's just going to bleed him to death, actually. So get them out of here, the society doctors. Get this weirdo who does this other Lockean kind of cognitive cure in here named Francis Willis, who does like this kind of, you know, a challenge, misassociated ideas. That was Locke's idea, is that we have these misassociations that create delusions that instead of seeing a bird and hearing the, the, the sound of the bird and learning the word bird, you know, somehow we get a cow in there. And so we think cows can fly. It was like early cognitive behavioral therapy, right? It's very much early cognitive behavioral therapy. The cognitive part is you attack the associations. The behavioral part is you do a lot of negative reinforcement, sometimes quite cruel for the behaviors. So Willis, unlike everyone, you never turn around and show your derriere to the king like you're supposed to like, he's in there like he's putting him in restraints. He's yelling at him, telling him that that's not true. You know, it was all very shocking. But then lo and behold, the king is cured. Now, whether the king had a up and down illness that just passed or whether he was actually cured, I leave it to those forensic pathologists who try to figure that out. But this was big news. And in fact, Francis Willis, who was no uh, Dumbo, he made a coin that said, the king is restored. And on the back, it said, Dr. Francis Willis, call me, <laughs> you know, and the coin spread all around, literally a coin. And suddenly there was this alarm in Europe because if you could cure mental illness, that was a very big deal for military strength and national strength. It was a big deal. A lot of people became mentally ill on the battlefield. So this became a matter of national security and all the other rival countries started to get very much engaged in what is this mind and how do they do this cure? And we have to figure this out too. Now, wasn't there a lot of turf battle between the doctors and, and the priests, right? Because the priests are in the business also of curing sick souls and, you know, the doctors cure sick bodies, right? And so now you introduce this new thing and it becomes contested territory. So it absolutely is contested territory. And it seems like there were some temporary truces, right? Yeah, that's exactly. So there's like a gradual erosion of clerical power, but it's gradual. It's not so dramatic. People still go to their priests. So where do you find like the actual advent of a field that's bold enough to say, our whole field is about curing mental illness. We are medical doctors who are mental doctors, mind. Uh, it doesn't happen until after the French Revolution. So the French Revolution routes the church. There is no church. The church is the enemy. And literally the people who are, you know, the Girondist doctor, Philippe Pinel, he was on the side of the revolution not a Jacobin, but on the side of the revolution, the Jacobins kind of fade and he starts to move forward and he has a lot of power with a, another one of his colleagues, Cabinet, and he founds psychiatry in France as mental medicine. And then in the post-Napoleonic era, soon thereafter, in Germany as well, people are starting to talk about the word psychiatry. So it is, in fact, precisely when the church is routed that this field makes its first way and it's only until the 1840s when, you know, really all these institutions are built that it gets really stabilized as something that's not going to go away because now there are asylums everywhere and they need doctors and those doctors are called psychiatrists. Now, they did have places like Bedlam, right, and Charenton, right? But what was their model? What were they? Well, that, you know, that's a very good point. So they were always old, old hospitals, uh, if you will. I use the word loosely because they were filled with paupers 
criminals, and people who are all sorts of sicknesses. So they weren't really that focused on any individual psychiatric illness. So yes, that was one of the things that Pinel did when he went into these old French hospitals and he started to sort out the, and famously, you know, he's claimed that he unchained the prisoners because he saw that they were not criminals, but mentally ill. In fact, it was a guy who was there before him who started to do that. But the point is still made that there's a shift in frame from these people are criminals and need to be restrained to they're mentally ill and we need to treat them. So that happens and it's happening in these old hospitals, like you mentioned, Charenton and Bethlehem. But in what happens in 1840 in France is really a game changer. And that is they pass national legislation that says every department, which is like a state in France, has to have and has funding for a state asylum. So now they build them out throughout the country. And meanwhile, they're building them out in this country, America. They're building them out in Britain. There starts to be this bricks and mortar movement that helps establish the field as now a permanent one. Because even back then, you know, Canel had very few followers and, you know, it's easy to exaggerate. This could have easily gone away. But once it became like institutionalized in that way, then there was professional kind of organizations that started to grow up and that really is when psychiatry establishes itself as a field for mental medicine. Yeah, I found it interesting that prisons and mental hospitals were under the same administrators, right? I mean, and I guess it's true today, right? I mean, most- Kind of like today. Yeah, most of the people in, in prison are mentally ill, right? Greg, it's a really horrifying thing to see how we have returned to that. We got rid of our asylums because many of them were, in fact, pretty hellish. And now what are the great, the biggest mental health providers in places like Chicago and New York? They're the jails. Uh, it's very distressing. It's very, very distressing. Now you, you introduced this, you know, sensibilité. And I, I remember studying that as a literary movement, right? All the folks in, in Jena with Goethe and Schiller and Herder. But you discussed this as a theory of mind. Yeah. First of all, I'm impressed that you studied it. Second of all, thank you for asking the question. So it goes back to that earlier question of how can matter think? What's the active force? And is there a model from biology that allows us to think that it's not just an, a machine? Well, what's the first cause? There's got to be some active force. And so there's this critical scientific experiment by a physiologist who starts to notice that if you touch muscle, it twitches, and that he calls irritability. And then he comes up with the notion that neurons must have sensibility, some sort of active power. And so the vitalists really take this and run with it. And as you say, and they end up running aground because their ideas get pretty silly at some point, but they help engender this notion that the mind is embodied, that there can be within this broader body an active force that helps us understand intention and will and the way thought can actually move us in the world. And so those people very much influenced the Germans and the people in Jena and the people who I talk about that were interested in nature philosophy. They all thought of active forces in nature and could rely on this kind of scientific foundation to make that claim. And there was this whole Montpellier school of folks that came up with this vitalism. Yeah, the Montpellier School, they really took this and they were the founders of vitalism. And, you know, one of the interesting things about this story is like 
I kept seeing throughout this history that innovation came from the outskirts. So Montpellier has a very famous medical school. It's always been the outsider to the Orthodox in Paris. And so Paris was still doing a lot of the Galenic stuff. And the Montpellier people, who also were Huguenots, a lot of them were Protestants. So they were outsiders in a lot of ways. They embraced this model of sensibility and vitalism for thinking about how the body regulates and how we can treat the body. And so they're very important because, in fact, Pinel is interested in them and studies with them. And, and they're very important because the person who is the most influential, I mean, if there's a second person who's the most influential in the story other than Locke, it's probably Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who I think one could claim is the most influential philosopher of the second half of the 18th century. And Rousseau is there not as a doctor, but as a patient. He is a famous malade. He's always, he's a psychosomatic guy who probably also had some weird urinary problems. But he goes to Montpellier and he tries to get cured there. P.S. He says he got cured by getting laid on the way there in the carriage, <laughs> having sex. But he then gets into treatment with a Montpellier doctor whose name is Tissot. And so he is very much, and his correspondence with Tissot is very clear that this notion of sensibility becomes this central concept for him. And what does he do with it? He rethinks child rearing. He rethinks education. He rethinks political life, ethics, all through this notion of we are sensible creatures who sensibility needs to be central to how we think about these other social structures. And so the notion of little Emile being a sensible creature, just let him be, let him run around. He's going to be fine. That comes out of this scientific or proto-scientific notion of sensibility. He was going to write a book called The Morals of Sensibility, which he never wrote. But uh, I argued like that unwritten book is actually in many of his other books. Romantic love as well, sensibility, right? That's, that's what Eloise is all about. And I think somewhere in there, the notion emerges that we're all a little mentally ill, right? <laughs> this is the common shared fate of humanity, right? Yeah, that throughout, that's throughout the whole, that's frequently this, the claim, like Locke, even, you know, Locke said, he called it the, the minor madnesses of most men. You know, we all have a few misassociations. <laughs> you know, we all have a few kooky ideas. It's only when you have really big ones that you have mental illness. And, you know, yes, sensibilities can get disrupted, so sensibility is getting disrupted and causing a depression or something like that. We are all potentially the victims of that. So there is this notion that the mind is a fragile thing. It's not simply God gave us one and it's fine. It's part of the body. It's part of the physiology. It's part of this sensible creature who the environment can deeply impact and who can deeply impact the environment too, but it can really lead to trouble. Now, you also talk about Mesmer and Gaul. And, you know, we look back at these movements and think, oh, these are crazy. But in some ways, they're both like green shoots of uh -huh. the modern way of thinking about the brain, right? I mean, yeah. yes, they were frauds to some degree, but there's an element of truth in what they were trying to do, right? Totally. And that's what makes them interesting is there's both an element of truth and then there's this kind of ideological demand that they fulfill, right? So that there is an element of truth as Mesmer is interested in these invisible forces, that magnetism that can 
somehow make us who we are, right? There are these early experiments with electricity and stuff like that. And Mesmer himself is really more of a bioreductionist. It's later on that one of his followers does the idea to idea mesmerism, like where I, I can put ideas in your head. He's more of a physical force guy. So he's a, I call him an astro reductionist because he's really interested in like these electrical, astrological forces, astronomical forces. And he's a scientist. He's a radical materialist. And so what does he show us? He teaches us a little bit about how radical materialism at that time could go sideways into this very weird place where he believed that he could, by staring at someone or doing something like that, control their inner lives. Gaul is, the, is in a way the most fascinating. We have TMJ, we have, we have ECT. We do think that electrical forces can change our minds. But so there's a little core of, of like a, whoa, that's true. But then you, what you see is the ideology of scientism, as opposed to being scientific, really taking over. And that's really the most apparent in Gaul, because Gaul takes this thing that we've been dying for forever, which is, can't we find the brain location for these psychological states? And can't we find empirical markers that tell us when that brain location and psychological state is messed up. That's the demand of empiricism, demand that, that there be a mind-brain solution, the demand that there be a totally materialistic but reductionistic way of thinking about things that also accounts for the mind. And so he just like fills all the demands, you know? It's like, you want it? Here it is. We have markers. They're on the skull. The skull has either got divots or little, the raised parts of the skull or the divots in the skull will tell you hypertrophy or diminishment of function. It will be over a part of the brain that I, Gaul, have anatomized and shown that suspiciousness is here, theatricality is here, mendacity is here. And so those are psychological functions that are in that part of the brain and that part of the brain alone. And so he's got a model of psychopathology, a model of normal psychology, a normal of neuroanatomy, and an empirical way of knowing it all. I mean, it's genius. It just happens to all be wrong. And it's so fulfilling to all the scientific wishes of the community that a lot of people buy it, especially in the scientific community. A lot of the superintendents of these mental asylums, they wanted to believe this so badly. They did, even when literary people were making fun of this as utterly absurd at the same time. I try to Never be, you know, anachronistic. It's like, I think it's ridiculous. But did anyone at the time think it's ridiculous? Oh, yeah, they did. Well, of course, we, we still have this fascination with fMRIs and tying, you know, this is the part of the brain where you, you know, enjoy bacon, right? And that kind of stuff, right? Exactly. Exactly. No, but the key word, Greg, is you, it, it's the part of the brain where you might enjoy bacon. If you read the news report, when this study comes out, the conditional tense is critical. This might be the area where schizophrenia exists. And it might not, it turns out. When it makes it to the headlines, it, the contingencies get lost, right? Yeah. The New York Times tends to be pretty good about the conditional tense, but I defer to you on other newspapers. Well, but also the story about how they got debunked is uh, as part of the history of science, right? And so with Mesmer, I mean, that, that, I don't think that's the earliest example, but it was kind of like an RCT that they did, right? To debunk Mesmer. And 
Ben Franklin was involved in this. Yeah, well, you're talking about the Benjamin Franklin French Commission. Yeah, that you know, Fran- this is starting to spread like a cult kind of thing, and it's scary because it undermines the rule of law and it's threatening to the church and to the state. And so, yeah, they have a royal commission that famously uses Benjamin Franklin to as one of the major people to try to do a controlled study and see if this actually works. And he ends up saying that it's, you know, a third theatricality, a third imitation, and a third fraud or something like that. And so that does actually wound the movement. And it still kind of exists, you know, it it ends up being hypnotism in the late 19th century, but then it's really not about the electrical energies or the magnetic energies so much as it is about unconsciouses affecting each other through hypnotism. So there's a next iteration that takes part of the kind of empirical experience of being with someone and having them go into an altered state and tries to reframe the understanding of it. Now, in your latest book of Fear and Strangers, you hone in on this concept of xenophobia or xenophobia. And I'm always very wary when people use this word phobia, right? Because phobia is a mental illness. And you, you talk about how the concept began as a mental illness and it evolved into uh, a much, much broader pejorative term, right? Yeah, that's critical because, you know, I did a, a little bit of etymology and whatnot and found that the Greeks actually in antiquity had never used the word xenophobia. And that was critical because phobos in antiquity is just fear. It doesn't mean anything medical. But by the time the term gets invented in the late 19th century, phobia is a medical term. And there are, I, there was a multiplicity of phobias that had emerged in the late 19th century up to like, I, my, I counted up to 75 different ones. And xenophobia was one of them so that it was now an irrational fear. And that makes all the difference, that adjective. It's an irrational fear. It's a mental illness. It's not just a fear. And so when you talk about the irrational fear of the stranger, that becomes one of the origins of the concept of xenophobia as it makes its way. Well, I mean, the Greeks actually, they had a view of strangers, which was one of warmth and welcome, right? (laughs) And of generosity. Yeah, the xenos is, one of the reasons why you don't find xenophobia in antiquity is that, in fact, the term xenos was kind of, restricted to mostly other people from other city-states who spoke Greek. And there was a whole ethic of hospitality that you had to take care of folks. That that was called Xenia. So the Xenos was both the guest and the stranger. And they were relatively, they had a whole culture and ethic about taking care of those people. The people they didn't like, the people they were quite, if you want to use the term xenophobic in our sense, would be like the Persians. And those people were all barbarians. So barbarians didn't get any kind of love when they came to your house. And so the guy who coined this, the, the coining of this term slightly missed the meaning in antiquity and in, in Greek life when he put this forward. It could have been, you know, barbophobia or something like that. Well, I, I saw some connections between the books. In, in the earlier book, you, you cite uh, Montaigne, right? And Montesquieu. And both of them had this view that what might look like craziness in another culture looks perfectly normal in in that culture. And those folks, when they look at our culture, see us as a bit crazy. And I think that kind of pops up in your discussion, particularly when you are talking about uh, Casas, right? Yeah, that's a good pickup. I agree with you that there is a sense of 
you know, the, the, the soul machine is about establishing this notion of the mind that I argue is central to the Enlightenment project. And the Enlightenment project is challenged by things like racism and xenophobia, right? Because in the Enlightenment project, we take it as self-evident that all men and women are created equal, that their environment changes who they are, but in terms of their kind of standing morally and ethically, and ontologically, they are all the same. So something like xenophobia is a challenge, a criticism, problematic inside the Enlightenment project, and then obviously became monstrously so with the Holocaust, where people start to say, like, actually, the Enlightenment project created this, which I, I actually very much disagree with, but it is like a pretty profound repudiation of how far Enlightenment modernity had taken us in terms of accepting the equality of others. So xenophobia was kind of a nice concept to think about, the irrational hatred of strangers, because a lot of the other concepts that we have really focus on the maligned group. So they're more sociological concepts. It's like you have homophobia, you have anti-Black racism, you have anti-Semitism, you have anti-Muslim Islamophobia all focus on the group. They never focus on that problem inside the person who is actually viewing the group like that. Xenophobia reorients us I, I, towards that person. And so that's where the problem lies because we know that some of the people who are racist are also homophobic or also xenophobic. Like that, They don't necessarily only stick to one group. It's a way of processing the world. And so I really wanted to have a concept to think about this highly problematic challenge to the Enlightenment notion of egalitarianism. And I would say toleration. There's another connection to the book because one of the big claims about Locke that I made was I wanted to tie together his political strategy of liberalism and liberal toleration with a model of mind that made sense with that. And I think that was very much on his mind. And so if the mind was fallible, and as you said, we could all be a little kooky, we had to be tolerant of that because no one had absolute knowledge. Knowledge was contingent. It was problematic. It came from associations. We put them all together. We could make mistakes. That was Locke. Therefore, in the public square, we have to tolerate each other's little kookinesses. You don't have the truth. I don't have the truth with a capital T. Xenophobia is the breakdown of that, right? It is the breakdown of toleration. It's the breakdown of the notion that the mind is limited in its way of knowing because there's a great certainty about the degraded other. And so that becomes also an extension from Soul Machine to Fear and Strangers. Well, one thing that really surprised me was that the earliest usages of this term xenophobia were with reference to the colonized people, right? <laughs> you know, like, like, hey, wh why don't these... You weren't the only one who was surprised. I was really shocked. I love doing the detective work of being a historian. And because what happens is you find again and again that your assumptions get blown up. And so, yeah, looking for the origin of this term, and I was pretty sure it was going to coincide with the ethical framework in which I thought of the term. But in fact, it was the opposite. In fact, you know, I, I was lucky and I found the guy who coined the term and he coined it about the boxers. And he had basically a racist framework that these were primitive people who saw all strangers as threats and wanted to kill them. Well, P.S. in China, there were about five different colonial armies trying to slice and dice up this failing empire. And, you know, that wasn't relevant. They didn't realize we're bringing Christ, we're bringing science, we're bringing civilization. 
They were irrationally afraid of strangers and attacking us for no reason at all other than this irrational phobia. So that was fascinating and, you know, really surprised me, of course. Well, I mean, they shared the belief that the fear of strangers was indeed primitive and that tolerance was indeed some evidence of progress. They just had very different definitions of what they thought of as tolerance, right? Yes, but I would say that they also had a great deal of confidence about racial superiority and inferiority. So the the yellow and brown and black people had this problem and we white people in Europe did not have this problem because of racial, you know, uh, notions of progress and racial notions of primitivity. And so what I de- delineate in the book is how that framework starts to break down as people start to say that these racial psychologies are racist. And P.S., they start to notice these things that they're describing as xenophobic happening next door, like with the anti-Semitic movements in London and in Paris, you know, anti-black lynching in America. People start to say, well, wait, this is xenophobic and these are white folks doing this. So this racial psychology can't really stand. This doesn't help us understand anything. And then it starts to be, well, we could all potentially be xenophobic. So now let's look at the problem from that lens. Well, I mean, there are lots of disagreement over the merits of things like nationalism, right? And there are respectable authors who have promoted the idea of collective identity and so forth. But xenophobia is a pathologization of that impulse, right? Yeah. I think that's one way of thinking about it. That's interesting. Yeah. Of course, nationalism. See, I really did try to suggest that this term has to be limited because it's an explosive claim. And so we have to have really clear markers for when we use it. In the same way I argued about, wrote a piece for the LA Review books. It's not in the DSM, is it? <laughs> no. And in fact, it's nor- it's, I, I say it's the darkest corner of normal psychology. Yeah. It's part of normal psychology. We can all do this. And you're not mentally ill if you're xenophobic. But what you are doing is resorting to a lot of projection and a lot of locking in of inferiority outside yourself. And so it's not the healthiest place to be. Is it pathological? No. Can anyone do it? Probably, yeah. But it it is a degradation of our reality testing, which again, I believe happens in normal people. I don't think normal people have fantastic reality testing, including myself. So, So, you know, then you start to focus on like, what are the historical situations by which xenophobia is really encouraged because really we're interested in not the xenophobia of any individual, but about how communities become xenophobic, groups become xenophobic. That's where we get to really scary stuff. And that's really, so So in some way in the book, I had to pivot in part to group psychology because everyone understood that xenophobia was a potentially an individual issue, but it had something to do with communities and groups turning against each other. And so that that's part of the problem too. Right. And I think every school of psychology was trying to grapple with this, right? So you have the behavioralists and they have an explanation for this. You have the psychoanalytical people who have an explanation for this. And then, you know, you even have sort of modern social psychologists who have an explanation for this. So you can sort of track the history of modern psychology by looking at how all these different schools try to explain this phenomenon. Totally. And that's exactly what I did. And I think that's, it was kind of fascinating because again, it goes to the, like, these people don't live in silos. They live in the same society. 
And they're all looking at the same kind of problem, the rise of fascism in Europe, things of that nature, and going like, what the heck's going on here? So the behavioralists have a way of thinking about stranger fear. And, you know, I talk about John Watson and how he created this, the first experimental phobia with poor little Albert, yeah, clanging the symbol behind his head every time he, they, they showed him a, a white rat. And, you know, then the cure of that with exposure. And, you know, I, th I think that the, 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 the take home from that is, yes, society can really ramp up your terror of an innocent other. And P.S., tolerance and exposure and habituation can make it go away, which, you know, I say in the book, well, that is the political project of, of desegregation and integration. Have people play on the same teams, date, go to school together, and their fears will start to diminish, even if they've been taught by their culture that the other person is really scary and bad. The psychoanalytic one, that becomes, well, the second one is really cognitive science, where the notion of stereotype emerges with Walter Lippmann. That was a surprise. Political philosopher Walter Lippmann is the inventor of the term stereotype. Yeah, exactly. And so he's looking at propaganda in World War I and how powerful it is. And he, he takes this term from the printing press, the stereotype, which is just a repetitive printing strategy, and he repurposes it for cognition. And then stereotypes become a purely cognitive way. You go to a movie by a racist movie maker, and you come away with notions that black people are scary and violent. Then, you know, what happens in the European setting is people start to think of this not so much in the environmental deterministic way of progressive America, because Americans were like environment creates in, in the 20s and, and early 30s, at least. And they start, and, and, but Freud thinks of it as more motivated. People, who are these people who want to hate? Who do they want to hate and why would they want to hate? And so the notion of projection and the way of stabilizing your own self-esteem by having a degraded other that you hate becomes very critical to Freud and then the phenomenologists in France who create the notion of the other. And so, yeah, I ended up tracking these major movements in psychology and finding they each had different answers. And then what I did at the end of the book was say, hey, you know what, guys? Each one of these answers is relevant. None of them is actually perfect. And we need to start making discriminations about how we think about xenophobia and think about, okay, when is the, a behavioral solution appropriate and when does it work? When does a cognitive solution work? When is this more troubling one of the psychoanalytic where groups are locked into hating? How do you, they're not going to go to your DEI training. They don't care. The, the, the people who care and will change their mind, that, that that's great. But what about those? And so I start to say, like, we need to distinguish what kinds of xenophobias we're talking about and how we approach them. And thanks to these four to five different ways of approaching them, we have a lot of tools in the toolbox. We just have to know how to use them and when. Yeah, what I found interesting is that after the scandal, after Little Albert, he went on to go into public relations. That <laughs> seems like the logical place to go, right? Advertising. Yeah, that's right. So he had an affair with, it, with, with his coworker. He was tossed out of Hopkins and he became a PR guy and very successful. Apparently, Maxwell House was his one of his clients. So good to the last drop. We all know that. Well, when it comes to the, the, the behavioral interventions, I mean, they seem fairly clear, right? Exposure therapy. They seem clear. You, exactly. It's like if you're afraid of, of the bridge, you think a bridge is going to fall down. Any phobia, it's the same thing. You got with, your, with like someone who comforts you, you walk across the bridge 50 times and it diminishes. So in integration, you know, bringing people from foreign worlds together, that 
works to some extent in what I call that other anxiety. I was like, we shouldn't really call that xenophobia because we all humans have that. If I meet someone who looks different than me, who speaks a different language than I do, who worships differently than I do, I am going to have some anxiety about what goes on with that person and how they're different and how they're thinking about me. So I think that's just almost universal. And we should think about that as the easiest part of the problem, bring people together. The stereotype problem is a problem like we've been facing in America for, I don't know, 100 years, where we start to attack groups implicitly, unconsciously or consciously, and then have to retract and move backward and think about how to undo the damage of having these categories that are part of the way the human brain works. We do use categories to make sense of the world. So if I don't know anyone who's black, and I have a category in my head of black people, and I've learned what those black people are, who those black people are from Looney Tunes, cartoons, were incredibly racist, or movies, you know, that is the idea that I have. I have no human to interact with that might alter that. So Hollywood is like really, you know, been all over this in terms of some things. And then the ones, of course, they're not aware of, they're not aware of. But Whoopi Goldberg plays God, like, you know, and right now, like someone uh, said recently, like, if you look at a movie these days, like the good guys are going to be black and the bad guys are going to be white because no one wants to use the opposite, which is going to be seen as racist because they did it for such a long time. So all of that is in a way lower hanging fruit. The tougher one is what do you do with communities like I think some of the white working class in this country who have been so decimated? economically and socially, that one of the things that decimated communities look to is to find self-esteem by having someone that they deride as worse than them in a hateful way. And, you know, I said, like, what is the claim of white superiority other than a confession of feeling inferior? And so what do you do with those groups? I mean, you can't approach it directly with like teaching them about stereotypes. There has to be a way to think deeper about the problems that these people face and the for instance, I wrote recently in The New Yorker about deaths of despair and stuff like that, where like these, these are communities that were drug addiction, suicide, alcoholism, unemployment have just ruined these communities. And so you have to think around the corner about like, even though they're saying these things, the deeper problem may be having a life that has some hope in it and self-esteem in it. So these are all kinds of different ways of breaking down the problem of xenophobia and attacking it with different tools. Yeah, and I think you also referenced the guy, what was his name, who came up with the whole notion of fight or flight. And I had no idea that there was a, a founder of that concept, right? But you mentioned him, Stanley Hall. Yeah, he was at Harvard. And yeah, fight or flight was very important to the behaviorist model, right? So that it, and this is why phobia, people would say to me, phobia, these people are aggressive. And I said, okay, fair enough. The term makes it sound like they shrink away in fear. But fight or flight helped us understand you have two choices in that moment, and one of them is fight. So people who are alarmed might jump into action or run away. And so, yes, aggression is definitely part of the model. Now, you said this book was inspired by events that happened to you in 2016 or events in the world that you observed in 2016. Yeah. And, you know, as a historian, I'm always very skeptical when we look at trends that we sense in our immediate environment and making grand historical claims. but I mean, if you could track longitudinally, right, these pathologies that exist in individuals or in, in societies, what do you think drives them? I mean, do you actually think that there is a higher level of 
other anxiety or, or xenophobia yeah. in the Western world now than, than there has been in, say, the immediate post-war period? And if so, what, what, what do you think is driving that? Well, I share your trepidation, but I did dive in. And, and so at the end of the book, I do make the argument. Look, I tried to track the use of the word xenophobia. And what I saw was a lot of people were saying, Tony Blair, many big deal people were saying, this rise in xenophobia that we saw around 2016 was the due to the crash of 2008, which seemed reasonable. But when you looked at the data on the number of usages, it just skyrocketed right after the end of the Cold War. And the collapse of the Soviet Union, the end of the Cold War, and suddenly this word just goes through the roof. And so the more I looked into it, the more I, I made the conjecture that the breakdown of the Cold War created uh, a lot of anxiety, uh, a, a lot of problematic identities, especially throughout Eastern Europe and all of these breakaway countries that had to figure out whether they were going to be EU, globalist, pan-EU countries, or nationalist countries. And PS also created a big problem in the United States. I think the Cold War stabilized the United States in a lot of ways. It gave, there was a common middle ground between, let's say, the more middle to hawkish de Democrats and the more middle to hawkish Republicans that really the big game in town was making sure that the communists did not win. And that helped, I think, stabilize the center of America. The breakdown of the Cold War left the Republican Party, especially, who were really the Cold War warriors, without any real clear direction. And I think it also undermined the notion that there was another model other than what liberal democracy and the end of history and Fukuyama and all that stuff, so that there was no barrier, there was no counter argument to some of the excesses that then occurred. So the destabilization of the United States and the internecine warfare between now where the Republicans really hate the Democrats more than anything, not the commies, and the Democrats have now had to regroup around the fact that globalist Davos economics is not gonna make anyone very happy in the United States by itself. I think it's been deeply destabilizing. So that's the argument that I made. Well, George, I think all three of these books are fascinating <laughs> and they certainly have opened my eyes to the history of medicine and psychiatry. Most recent book is called Of Fear and Strangers. And for that, this uh, wonderful book called Soul Machine and The Revolution in Mind, all about the creation of psychoanalysis. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Greg. It's been fun. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. <laughs>